This is section three of Mark Twain, a biography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography by Albert Bigelow Payne. Volume one, part one, 1835 to 1866. Read by John Greenman. Chapter three, A Humble Birthplace. Florida, Missouri, was a small village in the early thirties, smaller than it is now, perhaps, though in that day it had more promise, even if less celebrity. The West was unassembled then, undigested, comparatively unknown. Two states, Louisiana and Missouri, with less than half a million white persons, were all that lay beyond the great river. St. Louis, with its boasted ten thousand inhabitants, and its river trade with the South, was the single metropolis in all that vast uncharted region. There was no telegraph, there were no railroads, no stage lines of any consequence, scarcely any maps. For all that one could see or guess, one place was as promising as another, especially a settlement like Florida, located at the forks of a pretty stream, Salt River, which those early settlers believed might one day become navigable and carry the merchandise of that region down to the mighty Mississippi, thence to the world outside. In those days came John A. Quarles of Kentucky, with his wife, who had been Patsy Ann Lampton. Also, later, Benjamin Lampton, her father, and others of the Lampton race. It was natural that they would want Jane Clemens and her husband to give up that disheartening East Tennessee venture and join them in this new and promising land. It was natural, too, for John Quarles, happy-hearted, generous, and optimistic, to write the letter. There were only twenty-one houses in Florida, but Quarles counted stables, outbuildings, everything with a roof on it, and set the number at fifty-four. Florida, with its iridescent promise and negligible future, was just the kind of place that John Clemens with unerring instinct would be certain to select, and the Quarles letter could have but one answer. Yet there would be the longing for companionship, too and Jane Clemens must have hungered for her people. In the Gilded Age, the seller's letter ends, Come, rush, hurry, don't wait for anything. The Clemens family began immediately its preparation for getting away. The store was sold and the farm. The last two wagon-loads of produce were sent to Louisville, and with the aid of the money realized a few hundred dollars, John Clemens and his family flitted out into the great mysterious blank that lay beyond the knobs of Tennessee. They had a two-horse barouche, which would seem to have been preserved out of their earlier fortunes. The barouche held the parents and the three younger children, Pamela, Margaret, and the little boy, Benjamin. There were also two extra horses, which Orion, now ten, and Jenny, the house-girl, a slave, rode. This was early in the spring of 1835. They traveled by the way of their old home at Columbia and paid a visit to relatives. At Louisville they embarked on a steamer bound for St. Louis, thence overland once more through wilderness and solitude into what was then the far west, the promised land. They arrived one evening, and if Florida was not quite all in appearance that John Clemens had dreamed, it was at least a haven with John Quarles, jovial, hospitable, and full of plans. 
the great mississippi was less than fifty miles away salt river with a system of locks and dams would certainly become navigable to the forks with florida as its head of navigation it was a seller's fancy though perhaps it should be said here that john quarles was not the chief original of that lovely character in the gilded age that was another relative james lampton a cousin quite as lovable and a builder of even more insubstantial dreams john quarles was already established in merchandise in florida and was prospering in a small way he had also acquired a good farm which he worked with thirty slaves and was probably the rich man and leading citizen of the community he offered john clemens a partnership in his store and agreed to aid him in the selection of some land furthermore he encouraged him to renew his practice of the law thus far at least the florida venture was not a mistake for whatever came matters could not be worse than they had been in tennessee in a small frame building near the center of the village john and jane clemens established their household it was a humble one-story affair with two main rooms and a lean-to kitchen though comfortable enough for its size and comparatively new it is still standing and occupied when these lines are written and it should be preserved and guarded as a shrine for the american people for it was here that the foremost american-born author the man most characteristically american in every thought and word and action of his life drew his first fluttering breath caught blinkingly the light of a world that in years to come would rise up and in its wide realm of letters hail him as a king it was on a bleak day november thirtieth eighteen thirty five that he entered feebly the domain he was to conquer long afterward one of those who knew him best said he always seemed to me like some great being from another planet never quite of this race or kind he may have been for a great comet was in the sky that year and it would return no more until the day when he should be borne back into the far spaces of silence and undiscovered suns but nobody thought of this then he was a seven-month child and there was no fanfare of welcome at his coming perhaps it was even suggested that in a house so small and so sufficiently filled there was no real need of his coming at all one polly ann buchanan who is said to have put the first garment of any sort on him lived to boast of the fact this honor has been claimed also for mrs milly upton and mrs damerel probably all were present and assisted but she had no particular pride in that matter then it was only a puny baby with a wavering promise of life still john clemens must have regarded with favor this first gift of fortune in a new land for he named the little boy samuel after his father and added the name of an old and dear virginia friend langhorn the family fortunes would seem to have been improving at this time and he may have regarded the arrival of another son as a good omen with a family of eight now including jenny the slave girl more room was badly needed and he began building without delay the result was not a mansion by any means being still of the one-story pattern but it was more commodious than the tiny two-room affair the rooms were larger and there was at least one l or extension for kitchen and dining-room uses this house completed in eighteen thirty six 
occupied by the Clemens family during the remainder of the years spent in Florida, was often, in later days, pointed out as Mark Twain's birthplace. It missed that distinction by a few months, though its honor was sufficient in having sheltered his early childhood. This house is no longer standing. When it was torn down several years ago, portions of it were carried off and manufactured into souvenirs. Mark Twain himself disclaimed it as his birthplace, and once wrote on a photograph of it, No, it is too stylish. It is not my birthplace. End of chapter 3 A Humble Birthplace Read by John Greenman